The Grim Drive podcast explores mental health through the lens of professional sports and athletes. Pro athletes come forward more and more with stories about their mental health journey, what they have endured, and how they manage to push through, reflecting a mental health stigma that continues to be reduced. Pro athletes also leverage mindset to achieve peak performance, as well as representing and often driving elements of popular culture through the use of social media, technology, and personal branding. This places athletes front and center as role models for people of all ages, giving them a platform to reach many and deliver important information, including information about mental health. Welcome to the Grim Drive Podcast, where we explore mental health through the lens of professional sports and athletes. My name is Jonathan Busfield. I'm here, as always, with co-host John Cuna. Today, we'll be discussing uh, a bit of a mix of things. I think we're going to start with the topic of, um, you know, joining a new company, like when, a, when you get a new job, um, join a new organization, that kind of thing, you know, how to handle that. I think that's something we see. We're going to talk about... Um, Ime Udoka, the new Celtics head coach, in terms of him joining the team as a sports example, but we're going to talk more generalities first. Mm-hmm. So, what, I'll just let you riff on this a little bit. What are your thoughts on like when people, some of the people listening, I would imagine like when you join, when you have a new job, basically, right, um, and you're joining a company for the first time, what are some of the things you think about that in terms of challenges or things to look out for, or common mistakes people make, stuff like that? Yeah, um, I'm like flashing back to all my first time jobs. uh, And the overwhelming thing that comes up is like just a general sense of like anxiety and fear of like wanting to make sure you're doing it right. Um, Having like, you know, there's there can be the best training in the world. And then when you get actually get in there, it, it doesn't really translate quite to like that. And so a lot of it in the beginning is just like, what am I supposed to be doing sometimes? Yeah. Um, like the Mike Tyson quote, the everyone's got a plan until you get punched in the face. Yeah, right. And and I think, you know, I think that's a general thing that I hear from like lots of friends or family who are starting new jobs of just like, just learning what's going on. I think a lot of the sort of fading into the, almost like fading in the background, just like observing um, was always something that I tried to do. I think some of the things that, this is just a general piece about myself in general, but some of the traps that I think people get into, myself included, is when you start something new, um, or a new career, you're around new people, new environment, and you want to establish a good impression. And I think that people assume or believe that to establish a good first impression is to like make yourself available and do try to do everything for everybody. Mm-hmm. So when people are coming and saying like, I need to do this, or you can you do this, or you can do this, our instinct rather than being like, that's a great question. Let me have some time to think about that. It's always, yes, I can get that done. And then you bury yourself in tasks that maybe Which are not I've supposed done. to be I've done. done. Yep. Absolutely, yep. I am guilty of that, yep. especially when I was working in um, in schools, both in Boston and then um, in Lexington. You know, by definition, counselors in schools, this is just sort of like the milieu is sort of where we fall into mm-hmm. sometimes. Like we have our individual time, we have our groups, we have, you know, these different things, but something comes up, it's, boom, I need you to do this. Um, And that's sort of part of the role. So it sort of lends itself to that problem anyway. Mm -hmm. But I got into, I won't say deep trouble. I just got myself overwhelmed quickly by having to do a thousand different things. Mm -hmm. Teachers, and no malintent by anybody, they're just sort of like, you're a helper, right? Your 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 job is to help and to support. So you're who I go to if I need that. Um, and it doesn't relate to like needing to talk to a principal or whatever, an admin or something like that. 
Um, and then you just bury yourself in all those different things. And that, that I've seen not just for myself, but for a lot of people, like the fear of saying no because of how that will reflect on them mm-hmm. is high. And the reality is, is that if you establish yourself early with, you know, not necessarily if you're afraid to say no, and I know that that's a hard thing to do, I'd encourage people to say it more, especially when they need to. But if you're needing it to sort of just, you know what, that's a really great question. I don't have an answer for you right now. Let me get back to you. Mm -hmm. Or like buy yourself some time to actually think about what the task is that they're asking you Mm -hmm. and then go about executing it or not. Or if you don't think it's your role and don't want to get into the, especially in the first year, um, I had an aunt who was like, don't do something in the first year of your marriage you don't want to do for the rest of it. Because if you get, (laughs) if you do something in your first year, it's like, that's your role. And the same thing with new jobs. Um, if you establish yourself as that, it's really hard to remove yourself from doing those things. And then once you do, that can be like, well, why are you not doing this anymore? And mm-hmm. then it leads to a whole different uh, a different piece. So that was something that I had to learn the hard way after being the person who wanted to say yes all the time. Of That was my line of like, that's a really great question or – Huh, that's that's really interesting. Let me just get back mm-hmm. to you and give you that give that some thought. I like gave myself permission to buy myself some time to actually think about it. And I, I will say relationships increased, things got better, people started coming to me with things that I actually was responsible for doing. Mm-hmm. I stopped getting the like things that didn't really pertain to me. You would you would help direct them to the people that actually could do that and it just made things a lot more simple. So that was but it <laughs> a lot of yeah. trial and error to get there. Yeah, that so that you you bring up some great points. I mean, I think um, when you do that early on, you also you set expectations for other people, right? Mm-hmm. That's what you're kind of talking about. Is like if you're yeah. going to do something in the first three six months a year, people are going to expect that from you moving forward. Absolutely, and you sort of paint yourself into that corner. And I think we've yeah. talked about the danger <laughs> of expectations from a personal perspective. Yeah. This is an example of how if you do things a certain way you'll sort of implant expectations in other people's minds mm-hmm. and it's not, not doing anybody any favors, right? Right. So I agree with you. I think you also touched on sort of the the, the similar. I think there's a lot of similarities between work positions or companies and marriages. I mean, like, I think you're like, or relationships, I should say. Mm-hmm. Like when you're first, I see a lot of people make this mistake in the first three months of a relationship where I think this is why a lot of breakups happen in the three to six month mark because a lot of people put on a face of what they think the other person wants to see mm-hmm. um, instead of just being themselves. A lot of times because they're in- insecure and afraid that if they're just themselves, that won't be enough. Right. The problem is you're painting a picture for a person that really does not <laughs> mimic exist. what they're actually going to get. And right. so somewhere in the three to six month range, the real person comes out mm-hmm. and maybe that's not what they want. But you know what? That's usually about compatibility. Mm-hmm. I'm always a believer that like you'd want to figure that out as quickly as possible because you're saving both of you time. If you're not compatible, you're not compatible. You can fake it and be someone else, right? But that's exhausting. Yeah. Eventually, you, who you are is going to come out. You can only hide it for so long. Yep. I think that happens at companies too, where people come in and this is one version. One version of this is what you said, like being a yes person, taking on too much, saying yes to too many things. Um, but there's also other things in terms of demeanor and just you know maybe acting like somebody you're not. Um, I think all of that sort of sets you up to um, to have things not go so smoothly eventually because you might decide you don't want to do that because the, the luster wears off of the first like new, the new job, I can do anything, I'll do anything you want kind of thing, wears off after three to six months. When that does, if you now have to backtrack on things, not going to go well. And similarly, if you were acting like somebody you're not for the first three to six months and then you get comfortable and you start being yourself, it might confuse people. Right. right. So that's, yeah. um, I definitely agree with you. That's something that people do quite a bit. Yeah. And taking on all that extra stuff just leaves nobody really satisfied you especially you're yep. just overworked you're you're you put yourself on burnout track mm-hmm. and people 
you know, when inevitably that burns out, then you're left with all of these people who have built these expectations of you that now you can no longer deliver on. And then now everybody else is disappointed. And so you've, you know, I I think that's a hard thing for people to understand that like, that's the, that is the value of no, that upfront, it might feel really difficult to do, but the long-term effect of being able to set effective boundaries with people, both in relationships, at jobs, wherever is vital because it might be really hard to do in the beginning, but if you don't do it then, you're going to have to do it eventually, mm-hmm. whether it is by necessity or just by burnout. Yep. And it's so it's going to happen eventually. And it's much harder to establish boundaries once you've already been in, in a situation yep. than it is to just be like, this is what I need. This is what I'm comfortable with yep. doing. And here's how I can support you and whatever it is within my frame. Mm-hmm. And then go from there. And people have like, great, this is what I know that I can get. There's no more questions. I don't have to worry about it. And I, this is what it's going to be like versus yes to everything. Mm-hmm. And they're like, great, this is what it's going to be like. And no one can sustain that. No, no, agreed. And I, I think, you know, one thing people might do as well is like if either they will do what you just described, right, saying yes to too many things and really not setting boundaries clear enough from the beginning, or they will maybe pivot and not do it, but not be clear in their communication <laughs> that they're not going to do it. Yeah. So they either they'll, they'll, they'll say yes so there's two kinds of of yes people, right? There's the yes people that are saying yes because they are taking on too much, mm-hmm. which causes long-term problems, but they're also productive. So I guess like there's sure. some benefits to that. But then there's yes people that say yes when they really mean – internally they mean no. They say yes just to avoid conflict. Yeah. That leads to big problems because now – um, you're you're just not communicating effectively to people. Mm-hmm. Then there's people that maybe they don't say yes even though they mean no, and they don't say yes even though they mean yes, but they just kind of pivot or don't say anything, and they sort of just avoid setting the boundary in a clear way because it is hard. It's uncomfortable, I should say. It's not hard necessarily, but it is uncomfortable to set a boundary. So they might just pivot and not communicate, and then people are kind of left sort of like wondering what the hell's going on. Right. Um, I would say you see that quite a bit. So it's about trying, I think... Let's talk a little bit about how to set boundaries because I think you can say no while also painting a pit. In my opinion, it's good to – if you know you need to set that boundary, it's good to say no, but doing it in the right way and then providing yeah. an explanation, painting a picture for the person. You're kind of like – I don't want to say selling them, but you kind of are, but you're not It's not. You're not full of shit, you know, excuse right. my language. You're, you're selling them on why it actually benefits everybody, mm-hmm. you and them, for you not to be doing the thing that you're about to say no to. Yeah. Right? And you have to paint that picture for them so they understand where you're coming from. Right. I think that people too, like when I when people talk about like the importance of no and there's much more there's a lot more people out there talking about it, which is great. I think that when people hear that, they they assume like when someone's asking you to do something, the end you're just like, no. Right? It's just like this yes. cold, hard yes. line of just like, no. I don't have to do that. I'm that's not, not going to do job. that. Yeah. I'm saying no because it's important, <laughs> right? Like, and, I, and I think that that's a misconception, right? Um, you can say you can say outright no for something that you – is like you're – you know, as a, something that you just know is not there. It's like, no, that's not something that's, that's within my role. Yep. Let me try to figure – like, let's try to figure out what we can do to help support mm-hmm. you. Um, but it's never – you know, I, I can't – I'm sure this is maybe this has come up, but I can't think of a situation where someone asked me to do something like so far outside of my my realm of responsibility that I was just like, no, right? Just like cold and just like get out of my face. And I think that people (laughs) think that when they think that when like the importance of saying no, and it's just not that way. Plenty of ways to do that. And like what I what I had mentioned earlier of just like I'd always thought about trying to build a gap um, of time. So it's, you know let me circle back around to you on that or I don't have the answers for you. Let me go find those out. Mm -hmm. Um, And that usually 
a few things happened. One, I would always make sure that I touched back. If I said that I was going to follow back up, I always did. Because to, to your point, like if it was just like, oh, I'll get back to you. But really, it's just, I don't want to deal with this right mm-hmm. now. And then not follow up. That leaves the other person hanging of like, well, you said you were going to come back and now I don't know what to do. Mm-hmm. Um, so it always follow back up. Two things usually happened. One, I set up a pretty firm boundary with them in terms of like, they started to learn what was going to be like what they could come to me mm-hmm. when they would get answers with mm-hmm. and what they couldn't. Mm-hmm. And then I would always follow up like, hey, you know what I spoke with? So and so, here's what they told me. So then, not only did the, so I tell them helping. where to go, even though I'm you, still you helping. might say no in the end, or you can't right. do that specific thing, you yep. are still being a team player by yes. helping them problem solve. Absolutely, yep. and I'm effectively establishing a line of communication with the appropriate person that they should be following up with. And the other thing that usually would happen is that they'd figure it out in the time. Yeah. So when I circled back around, they'd be like, oh, you know what? I actually found this person and we figured it out. Mm-hmm. Oh, great. That's fabulous, right? So those were like sometimes my- Sometimes that's frustrating, but yeah. Sometimes. <laughs> but and you're like, could have told me. Because exactly. I, I did it anyway. <laughs> uh, but again, it was, that was like one of the, that was something that worked well yeah. for me. And I, and I carry that too of like, if I, and, and also too, me being honest with myself and being like, you know, I don't know the answer to this question and I'm not going to just tell you something because I feel like I need to. Um, and I found that once I, I did not do that in the beginning, um, especially when I was working in Boston, I was just like a firefighter. I like, we literally had walkie talkies in the offices and it was just like, John, I need you here. John, I need you here. And I was like, you got it. Um, and it was just bouncing around. Mm-hmm. Um, and then when I was in Lexington the first year, probably same problem. But then as I got a little bit more comfortable, started establishing some of those boundaries mm-hmm. and things went way smoother, yeah. um, communication wise, systems wide and things just kind of went, went there. So I think. It's it's funny. I have these conversations sometimes with friends, and they say the same thing. They, I hear that of like, well, it's so rude to just say no. And I was like, well, yeah, but are you saying like no, like cold, or just Abrupt. like I yeah. can't answer this question. I need to find something that can. So I agree, and I think it speaks to how like look, like we've talked about so many times on this show, things are are rarely black and white. So it's not like either yes or no. And yet when people hear like, hey, the importance of saying no, I think they often interpret it that way. Like either I say yes to something, or I give a flat out abrupt no. Mm-hmm. Which sometimes I, you can say. Sometimes, sometimes you, you can, can be like, no, I'm not going to do that. Correct. Absolutely. Sometimes you can. Yeah. I think a lot of times, like especially when you're new to a company, it's good to be willing to wear multiple hats and try to help people problem solve. That's what you described. Mm-hmm. There are situations where you the, the eventual answer might be that I can't do this, but that doesn't mean you can't still help the team problem solve how to do it, right? right. So it's about like the mindset of like, I think saying no is much more, maybe it's better phrased like... Um, learning how to step back and evaluate and problem solve before mm-hmm. saying yes more mm-hmm. than it is about just abruptly saying yeah. no right but right. that's not as catchy as learning how to say no yeah um because i think a lot of times you know when you're new to a company it's really key to not shut down possible opportunities to show value mm-hmm. or look for opportunities to grow as a person right now if you get into things and you realize that like particularly what I look for is like if it if I know it aligns with one thing one of the things you and I have talked about is like the difference between strengths, weaknesses that can be changed and weaknesses that just are not going to change, <laughs> right? You got to know your you got to know your strengths, you want to play to those. You got to know the weaknesses that can't be changed because those are not worth working on. I think a lot of times we think of it as strengths and weaknesses mm-hmm. and people want to fix their weaknesses and some weaknesses can be worked on. Other ones, you just got to accept who you are and move on, right? Yeah. It's not going to do you or the company any good to focus on that stuff. So I think if if it's something you're asked to do that that really puts you in a position to have to do something that is one of your weaknesses that can't be changed, that I don't think is a good idea. And that's much more about setting a, a clear boundary, but explaining to the person why it actually benefits everybody for you not to do that. Yeah. And then offering, hey, I can't do it. 
but I can help you problem solve or try to find the right person. I can have this conversation like you described yep. with person X or person Y to figure out how we can come together. So I think that's kind of what I would say to it. The other thing is like, I think this goes along hand in hand with like saying abrupt no. A lot of times I think it's a huge mistake when people say that's not my job. I would never say that word. Like I, I don't think anytime you say that's not your job, it really just whether whether it's accurate or not, it paints the picture that you are not a team player and that you just really just care about yourself more than the the whole mission, the common goal of the team or mm-hmm. the company. Um, and sometimes you might not even mean that, but that's always how it's going to come across. So instead of saying like that's not my job, I think it's about helping to problem solve with the person and pivot and say, hey, I don't think I'd be great at that. But I can help, like, how about if I help this way to try to figure out a way to solve this together and find this person? That way you're still adding value, like you said. Yeah, I think two things you mentioned. I'll just touch on the, that, that, the last part, too, of, like, when you get that, like, that's not my job. That always just, like, you know, we're, we're in a, a field of wanting to keep curious was a, was a term I got mm-hmm. from, from one of my um, – Carmen Dominguez, one of my professors who I've, I've, I've adopted, uh, like, always keep curious. Yep. And so, like, I get a, I get a line like that. And then I, it piques my curiosity, right? More than it does of like, yeah, it's like, huh, okay, that's abrupt and off-putting mm-hmm. of like, that's not my job. Like you're 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 attempting to set up a boundary, but doing it in a very specific way. Mm-hmm. I kind of want to dig like that's yep. where I want to get to yep. of like, why is that the mechanism that you're using? Mm-hmm. Because it's usually that there's potentially something else that, that's that's mm-hmm. causing that. Totally. So that usually goes to that. And then the other thing you talked about when we were talking about like strengths and weaknesses and weaknesses you don't like you can't change or are willing to. Um, I think that we we often like always we're talking about like how do you know let's work on our strengths or our weaknesses or work on our weaknesses and do those different things and we forget that like we need to also focus on our strengths because that's where we're going to be able to that's where you drive to support your weaknesses is from your strengths mm-hmm. let's use what you are good at currently to help foster and facilitate growth in the areas that you're not yeah. I think it, you know if you're asking someone to like do better at something they're not good at it's like okay how am I supposed to do that. And the the other piece is, well, use what you are good at and find creative ways to support things that you need support in. And mm-hmm. I think that that's a, a helpful way to try to think about it. I think that, like, focusing on strengths gets lost sometimes. Yes. Uh, so it's like, oh, I'm already good at that, so, like, whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, I need to just focus on my weaknesses, which, sure, you want to focus on areas of growth. But to do that, you need strengths to help you through that, yeah. those different things. Yeah, I agree. It should. I, I feel like I don't know how to cut it down to a percentage, but I feel like jobs should really be about, like, 80% playing to strengths, 20% working on some of those weaknesses yeah. that can be worked on and letting go of the ones that can't be worked on. Right. The only other things I would add to like, you know, the topic of joining a new comp- joining a company for the first time, like starting a new job. One, I would say um, that it's mentally taxing and to prepare for that. The first three months when you're meeting new people and you're doing something new, it's a new environment, yeah. all this newness is we've talked about kind of the 90-10 rule that, that, uh, in different, I think – I think if that was like the ADHD, I think we talked about that with ADHD, but it's that like when you're first doing a new task, like when you're first learning to drive, it requires like 90 to hundred percent of your active focus and, and brain usage, mm-hmm. so to speak to do it. And it often leads to you being very drained afterwards. Most people give up on that task and, and don't really stick with it to form a habit because they're, they convince themselves it's always going to be that hard. It's actually never going to be that hard again mm-hmm. after that point. That is the hardest it's ever going right. to be. And as you get into like like the first couple of days at a company are exhausting. You're learning a whole new way of doing things and you have no idea where you are yet, right? So as you get in there though, that 90%, 95% keeps decreasing to the point where you can do a lot of stuff on autopilot. It just mm-hmm. takes a little while to get there. So that's one thing is to remember that the first three months are going to be very emotionally draining, very stressful and taxing, but it gets better. Yeah. And the second part is 
saying less uh, uh, less is more, right, in the beginning. When you're first three months of a company, I know there's some situations where based on where the company is and what needs to happen, you might have to move faster. But most of the time, it's better to just take at least the first month, six weeks to just get the lay of the land, figure out who's who, don't say much. You're only going to like, if you come in sort of guns blazing, looking like you're going to f- try to fix everything, it usually doesn't land well with the people that have been there before you. Um, so it's good to just be a little bit more quiet and supportive and build trust and try to get a feel for who is who and what, how things work before you start trying to implement changes. Yeah. I always talk about like, just be the, be the active observer, yep. right? Like yep. try to, try to put yourself in positions of like learning about people and, and learning about systems, how things function. And, you know, you, and for the people who like come in guns blazing, if they don't know where the problems lie and they try to fix them right away, you're not necessarily yeah. a, you're fixing the wrong problems yep. or not the correct ones, or you're doing it in a way or that making the, new ones or making yeah, new yeah, ones. Yeah. Right. So be, sort of being the observer so that you can pinpoint like okay yes where where is my role gonna gonna function who are the people that i can get support from Mm -hmm. that takes time that's not an immediate piece and sometimes like your direct supervisor might not be the person that you want to go to for like the milieu day-to-day stuff and that might be somebody else but if you know so i think it's a good it's a good idea of like that first you said like three months of just sort of like let me just get a sense Mm -hmm. of what this place feels and looks like and then start to you know go from there yeah for sure for sure so we wanted to talk a little bit about we tie this in, I should say, to Ime Odoka, the new Celtics uh, head coach who, who was just uh, brought on recently. Um, Brad Stevens, the, the coach before shifting to more of a GM role, uh, or I guess team president, president slash yeah. GM, um, found it very interesting because I think it, it, to me, it seemed like a, a good bit of self-awareness on Brad Stevens' part, sort of maybe seeing that while he's a great coach, I think I think connecting with the players in a way that was uh, needed for them to actually perform at the highest level maybe wasn't happening. Mm. Um, and I think he saw that, I think him and maybe the rest of the Celtics, uh, the ownership, saw that uh, it would require a different voice to do that from a head coaching perspective. So mm-hmm. Ime Odoka comes in a little bit different in terms of starting a new job because I think he has coached several of the players on yeah. Team USA and things like that. Yep. But what what would you say to like, you know, how do things change when a new coach comes in to a team in terms of how they approach that from taking that on. Do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, it's a little bit different um, because you sort of have to kind of hit the ground running a little bit quicker than you would, right? You don't, especially with sports, three months could be a season. So you can't just sort of like sit back and observe. Um, You look to the leaders of the team. You look to the people who have been there. You align with them. You gain their insight. You gain their trust. And that sort of permeates down. Um, Do you think that's what he's doing with Marcus Smart? I hope so. Seems like that. I hope so. Yeah. Um, because I think that Marcus is in a really integral role outside of just a performer on the court. I think he's uh, the heart of the team. Yeah, I think yeah. he's the passion of the team. I think that when he's playing with his heart on the court, the team responds. Um, so I think utilizing him as, as an important piece, uh, like gain some alignment and trust with the, the important people on the team. Because those are the people that the other the other teammates are following, and if you can gain their trust of like this is a person that I trust, it kind of it it, it, it all kind of falls into place. Yeah. Um. The thing that, and I think we've talked about this on previous podcasts before. I know I've mentioned it in in places before, but um, my old track coach talks about like the vertical and horizontal accountability, mm-hmm. and I think that that's this is sort of what we're talking about. Like if you can keep people in line from the top down and then across the the board, mm-hmm. it makes a really um, a really succinct team. Yeah. And that, that, that comes from communication and trust. So I think like you saying, it's different on, for a team of like, you do have to come in and I don't necessarily think you come in and like bark orders to the entire team. I think you designate a, a lot of your time getting to know 
the the leaders mm-hmm. of the team and setting up systems. What have you noticed? What do you need from the team? What are, what are things that you want to work on? Getting their insight and buy-in so that they're a part of that, I think, is a good first step. I don't know if that's what he's looking to do. And again, I'm not a professional coach. That was some of the stuff that I used to do. Well, and from you wrote talking a book on coach, coaching. John. I did okay, write a book like, on don't, coaching. Uh, don't undersell <laughs> yourself here. Okay? So I, I think that that's where you start to get the most the most effective team is when you can pull your leaders into that yeah. that aspect of it and it just it it makes the system way way better. It seems um, like that's what he's doing because there has been a lot of you know look, look we don't know things that come out in the media 100% but he ha- I think he has uh Ime Odoka specifically has spoken to the fact that they view Marcus Smart as sort of a pillar right yeah. of, of the team um very much the emotional leader the heart of the team. Yeah. And he wants him to. He wants to put. He said he wants to put the ball in his hands. He wants him to be the distributor. So I think he's seeing that not just in a teammate, team culture, leadership mm-hmm. perspective, but also like a when the ball is originating with Marcus Smart, it's going to get more people involved. And I think it, the the approach, the mentality is going to permeate through the team because I do agree. I think when Marcus Smart is one of the only people that you look at the team last year, and I know we're going off on a Celtics tangent here, but look, hey, we're we're Celtics fans. We're going to get into that in a second. Um, the team lacked a little bit of tenacity and a little bit of, uh, I don't know how to even put it, just like that kind of grit, like where they were just outwork people and they would have a little edge to them. Like mm-hmm. if someone kind of, you know, went, stepped over a line professionally in a game, like they just didn't, they just folded. And I, I hate that. I can't mm-hmm. stand watching teams like that. I like teams that like, I don't want teams to have like, you know, brawl in the stands or anything like that. But like, you know, if someone Kyrie logo thing, like mm-hmm. what, to me that warrants a, a, non-injury driving message to be sent in the next game, right? Mm-hmm. And that just didn't happen. They just didn't seem to care. And I think this year, I would guess, putting the ball in Marcus Smart's hand, having him be like the the leader of the team, I think they're, they're going to gain a bit of an edge to them that wasn't there last year. Yeah, I think he's also probably putting a little, you know, he's always been the sixth man, right? Yep, yep. And now he's not. Yep. So uh, I think he's going to, I think it's going to be interesting to see like the response. I think he's smart in mm-hmm. putting I didn't mean to do that. I think he's smart in putting smart there. Um, <laughs> no pun intended. I yeah. promise I, it was not intended. Um, but I think he's. I, I think it's a good move yep. to put him in a position of leadership because he's been a leader for the team without being like a designated one, mm-hmm. right? I think he's gotten a lot of backlash, myself included, when he shoots the three-pointer. I, I get nervous and I get frustrated sometimes. Cause, mm-hmm. uh, but I think that his presence on the court is – there's very few players that are that are able to do what he's able to do. Now I think he has some some occasions where the passion goes too far and he loses a little bit of control and mm-hmm. makes stupid decisions, but that happens in sports all the time. I'm curious to see the response and I'm also wondering um you know if that's part of the coach's idea too. Like yeah. what happens when I put you in a position? Do you step up to it? Do uh-huh. you do you, do you lean into it? Or is it a position that you're not quite ready for? So I think he is ready for it. I think it's going to, to your point too, I think it's going to provide a spark. Um, and there's a, another really good example. This is a little bit of a tangent here off, off to put, but there was a game, a preseason game with um, the Patriots. And this is sort of the same thing with like coaches identifying moments of time to test players, mm-hmm. like um, pieces, where it was Mac Jones, second down, and they they clearly got a first down and like you could see that there was a first down and Belichick didn't challenge it. Um, and then I was like, huh, I wonder if he's wanting to see how Mac Jones is going to respond to like frustration. He's like, I got the first down mm-hmm. and it was like a third and six or third and seven or something like that, which is like, 
you know, not an easy, not yeah. an easy first down. And he got the first down. And then actually in the press conference, he said as much. He was like, yeah, I kind of wanted to see what was going to happen with, with his response. And I think that that type of stuff happens all the time. Mm-hmm. That's like next level coaching, yeah, yeah, right? And, yeah. and no surprise it's coming from Belichick, yep. uh, greatest coach of all time. Uh, <laughs> argue if you, if you want to try, yeah. but that's fine. Have fun with that. Yeah, have fun. Yeah. But I think that that type of stuff happens with coaches. And I think that putting Marcus in the, in this position, I think is a, is a strategy that he's looking to see of like, he's, I think it's from a, team perspective i think it's mm-hmm. a smart choice just by the numbers but i also think it's more than that um for him of like what ha- what's going to happen with you in this role absolutely I'm, I'm excited to um watch this team they got horford back they have um some kind of subtle veteran pieces they've added they got a couple young guys that are in season two uh mm-hmm. neesmith and pritchard who yep. i think are schroeder. Gonna, yep schroeder they brought on for a, for a great contract who happens to sports despise Kyrie, which I'm all in. That's <laughs> love them. Welcome. Love that. Can't yeah. wait to see that play out in Welcome. real time. Johnny, we are season ticket holders for the first time. Yeah. Uh, can't say enough about how excited I am about that. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to warn people that because of that, we might be seeing quite a few games. You may hear me rant against refs. I, I yeah, tend to well, do that. It's, it's inevitable. You can rein me in if needed. Yeah. Um, no, I'll be right there with you. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> so we're excited about that. Um, you know, obviously Ben Ben's a you know, Boston fan, and especially Celtics fans for a very long time. So being able to see this team firsthand with all these uh, young pieces is going to be great. Um, it's exciting. Yeah, so look, look forward to it. Yeah, can't wait. Um, so we want to thank everyone for tuning in to this episode of the Grim Drive Podcast. Uh, as always, we just encourage people to subscribe on YouTube and ask. You know. Put some comments in there. Ask us some questions. We will respond. Uh, yeah. It hasn't happened that often, but I think people, like, if, if you leave a comment and you have a question, well, we'd love to have that back and forth dialogue. Um, we always put the uh, links in the show notes as well. And that's it for today. I want to thank everyone for listening to the Grim Drive podcast. Uh, we'll be back next week. Thanks, everyone.